Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, an original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Welcome to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that always keeps its story straight and never deviates from the truth. My name is Mark Hunter, crypto writer and suitcase packer extraordinaire, and with me, as usual, is the man who'll be jetting off to Barbados first class, courtesy of Mastercard and the Bilderberg Group, it's Arthur Van Pelt. Arthur, are you ready for your summer break? Hi, sir. I am. But uh, for the moment, thanks for having me on uh, again, Mark. That's a pleasure as always. Will you be jetting off with the CEOs of, of MasterCard off to their private islands then this summer? Um, I'm trying to. I, I tried to reach out to them, but so far they did not reply. So uh, <laughs> I, I will probably stay home with my kids uh, this whole summer. <laughs> Fair enough. Not this year. Not this year. <laughs> not this year. Maybe next year. <laughs> We start this month with the pineapple hack case and CoinGeek's attempted takedown of the theory espoused by the Bitcoin Legal Defence Fund, whose chief legal officer, Jessica Jonas, has, in CoinGeek's words, been conducting a, quote, PR blitz to make the world aware of the case and its ramifications. CoinGeek decided to do a fact-checking exercise, which is about as legitimate as Russia conducting an internal war crimes investigation, in which, surprise, surprise, it found that Jonas was telling a bunch of lies. CoinGeek started by claiming that the Bitcoin Legal Defence Fund wasn't set up to defend Bitcoin developers against anyone who might try and sue them, but that it was, quote, created specifically to fight one individual, Dr. Craig Wright. That's because he's the only person who has sued Bitcoin developers. Here's how it works, CoinGeek. You are a country with an army and you threaten another country that doesn't have an army. That country will almost certainly build one in order to defend itself against you. If you have an issue with armies being formed against you, don't threaten people. It even criticised the fund for not doing a Craig Wright and starting litigation of its own, saying, quote, To this day, the fund has not taken one action or issued one bit of press that is not about Dr. Wright. This is the equivalent of threatening to punch someone full in the face, have them turn around and say that they are going to defend themselves against anyone who tries to punch them in the face, only for you to then try and claim some sort of moral high ground because they haven't announced that they'll be punching anybody else in the face. CoinGeek then adds a line that gives you a flavour of just where we're going with this. Quote, It's true that many people seek to abuse the legal system in order to achieve one end or another, However, what Jonas does not say is that the courts, and in particular the courts of the United Kingdom, where Dr. Wright has filed most of his lawsuits, have rigorous mechanisms for filtering out frivolous lawsuits. Literally no shame. Where CoinGeek takes its biggest issue is over the impact of the case. The Bitcoin Legal Defence Fund argues that the case could impact the whole open source software space, with any creator of open source software potentially liable for loss by someone using their software. CoinGeek argues that the case is much more narrow than that, that it will apply to only blockchain developers and indeed developers of just four blockchains, BSV, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Cash ABC, now eCash. 
CoinGeek argues that, quote, success by tulip trading in this case would not impact open source development generally, it would impact only tulip trading, while setting a precedent that could be applied to other blockchain developers in the same or substantially similar fact situations. This, however, is not the opinion of a leading IP lawyer I spoke to this month who said that everything will come down to how broad or narrow the judge in the case would interpret any victory by Craig Wright, and that he and his colleagues were indeed worried by the potential ramifications of such a win for the open source community. Two weeks after this, in mid-July, the Bitcoin defendants filed something in the case which turned a few heads. Arthur, can you give us a high-level review of what was filed? Ooh, well, that's a challenge, uh, Mark. <laughs> Very high level. The, the defendants, who call themselves the INEO defendants, uh, seek to have the claim struck out because uh, it is a fraudulent claim and an abusive process. But diving into the details uh, of the filing, we find them stating, and I will quote from, uh, from the filing, mm -hmm. TTL accepts that it must establish that it owns the digital assets in order to obtain the relief it seeks. It cannot do so because it never owned the digital assets and has commenced this claim fraudulently and in reliance on fabricated documents. This is of a piece with the historical conduct of the individual behind TTL, Dr. Craig Wright. Dr. Wright has a long history of fraud, forgery and dishonesty, including in court proceedings in this jurisdiction and internationally, which is true. <laughs> he has been shown to be a thoroughly dishonest individual and it is the position of the NEO defendants that these proceedings are an attempt by Dr. Wright through TTL to use the English courts as an instrument of fraud. These are plainly very serious allegations and they are not made lightly. End of quote. So there you go, Mark. Yeah, they're not messing about, are they? No, this is as clear as day uh, what they think about uh, the whole situation. Those of you who tuned in last month will remember that a key element of the COPA case will have an impact on all Craig Wright's other UK trials and may even see a separate mini-trial to decide it. This is the identity issue, i.e. is Craig Wright Satoshi Nakamoto, but the developers want to go one further and have a judge decide on the ownership issue before the case begins, which centres around the idea of whether Wright owned the very coins that he purports to have lost. This, of course, is crucial to the case, because if a judge rules that he never owned the coins in the first place, then the case probably won't go ahead. I say probably because with the British legal system, you just never know. The individual putting forward the request, Enyo solicitor Timothy Ellis, argued that Wright's case was fraudulent because the premise on which it was based was as secure as a cardboard bank vault, only he used more professional terminology. Quote, there is a compelling prima facie case that TTL did not own the assets in the addresses at the time of the alleged hack and has fabricated documents to support its claim to ownership of the digital assets. This evidence, Ellis argued, was damning enough for the court to conduct a mini-trial over this element alone and began his argument by rolling out a catalogue of comments from judges over Wright's tangles with the legal system in previous years. Arthur, this was like a greatest hits compilation, wasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, in this podcast, we can quote as much as we like, but in this case, I really would like to recommend the listener to go to uh, to find this filing online. And I think, Mark, maybe you can put the, the, the link to that filing uh, in, in the podcast description, maybe. Yep, sure. Because if the listener goes to the whole D section, which is starting on page nine, 
it, it kicks off with the Ryan case from the early 2000s, and in this case a ruling from 2005, where the judge stated that Dr. Wright's explanations and interpretations of these and related documents are contradicted at critical points on which there is no independent evidence to support him. And of course, many quotes from the Climate versus Wright rulings, the Peter McCormick and Hoddlenot cases, etc. So really go to that link and, and read that D section of, uh, of this filing. It's a beauty. It is. It is wonderful. It almost summarizes the first series of our podcast. Yes, sir. Having appraised the Court of Rights history, Ellis then went on to outline the specific reasons why the Pineapple Hack case was yet another instance of Wright bringing a false case. Interestingly, Wright's law firm for this case, which, as we reported last month, has changed from Ontier to Travis Smith, has confirmed that it will rely on no documentary evidence other than what has already been submitted to back up the purchase and ownership of the coins in the 12 Ib 7 and 1 Fix addresses. This is particularly troublesome for Wright's claim over the 12 Ib 7 address because, as Ellis pointed out, Roger Ver asked for any and all evidence of ownership of this address to be presented so it could be analysed and was met with a wall of silence. The only three things put forward by Wright as evidence of ownership, if you can call it that, are extracts from his company accounting software, a dodgy as fuck purchase order and, of all things, discussions with the Australian tax office. That's not going to end well. We'll start with some accounting records from one of Wright's companies, Craig Wright R&D, which Wright alleges became the Tulip Trust in 2011. Arthur, one word, did it? Nope. Wright is relying on records from two accounting suites, MYOB and Zero, to somehow prove ownership of the assets, although the idea that personally inputted data proves anything beyond the user's ability to tap in a number is an area for strong debate. MYOB has no record of the 12 Ib 7 assets, but it carries a record of the receipt of the one Fix coins, while Zero has a record of both being under control of a Craig Wright entity, but not past January 1st, 2014, so hardly conclusive. Of course, self-entered figures are hardly proof of anything, and Arthur, what else did Ellis find regarding these accounting figures? Well, this part of the debunk uh, involves uh, modifications that are added to an audit history log, of the accounting software and then Alice states that the discrepancies were found and now I'll quote again Given the above, the accounting records cannot be relied upon as contemporaneous records of ownership of the digital assets. Consistently with the purchase order, these documents also have signs of a fabrication which the ANEO defendants would expect to prove at trial. End of quote. We then come to an ATO investigation and subsequent report from 2013 on which Wright is leaning, with Ellis summarising Wright's argument as being that he wouldn't have claimed to own the coins in the addresses because of the tax implications of doing so. But Arthur, what's the truth about this one? Well, Craig Wright did actually claim to the ATO that he owned uh, the Bitcoin in these uh, addresses. And the Bitcoin developers, they state, and as far as I know from my own research, I can confirm that this is completely correct, the NEO defendants believe that Dr. Wright identified the one fix and 12 IB7 addresses and the other addresses he listed in this email from an online Bitcoin rich list. And here you go, Mark. This is what I also have said so many times for so many years. Hmm. Craig Wright only took those Bitcoin addresses from the Bitcoin rich list and claimed that they were his, but they were not his. They belonged to other people. But making that claim is what he did to the to the ATO. So back to the quote. 
uh, from an online Bitcoin rich list in an attempt to demonstrate that he had substantial Bitcoin holdings in order to justify and explain the rebate the ATO was in the process of investigating. End of quote. But what happened back then, Craig was requested by the ATO to sign these addresses to prove that he owned them, but Craig ducked those signings with the lie that he couldn't sign them because, I'm going to use a quote again, when that request was made to me, the assets in the address and other addresses were outside Australia for tax reasons. End of quote. <laughs> yeah, crazy, crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, then the, the Bitcoin developers couldn't help but noting that uh, this answer is an obfuscation. The ability to use the message signing feature is not geographically linked and can be done by anyone, anywhere, with a relevant private key." End of quote. And to add insult to injury, Mark, the Bitcoin developers then lay out the rest of Craig's history with the ATO where quote again, right deliberately altered or fabricated materials provided to the ATO and lied to the ATO in various respects. And that the ATO found that Dr. Wright admitted to backdating invoices. Yeah, that is bookkeeping uh, fraud, uh, Mark. And uh, what uh, they also said, the ATO then commenced a criminal investigation into Dr. Wright, which resulted in a raid of his property in Sydney shortly before he fled to the United Kingdom, where he now resides. So the NEO defendants understand that the ATO criminal investigation remains ongoing. Mm -hmm. This is how, how it is at the moment. And this is how it went with uh, the ATO uh, back in uh, 2013, 14, 15. And uh, yeah, I, I can only fully agree with the, the Bitcoin developers. But then Alice, on, on behalf of the Bitcoin developers, uh, concludes this ATO section with it is implausible that if Dr. Wright owned the digital assets or any material amount of cryptocurrency, that he would falsely claim to own Bitcoin addresses owned by others. The fact that Dr. Wright falsely claimed ownership of other addresses at the same time as claiming ownership of the digital assets supports an inference that he has fraudulently claimed ownership of the digital assets and has now done so for some time. End of quote. Yeah, this is uh, the stance of uh, the Bitcoin developers, and I couldn't agree more, uh, Mark. Yeah, Craig Wright can't have it both ways, can he? That's it. Next comes the purchase order, the issues with which we described in detail in our June bonus episode. In summary, however, as Ellis points out, the exchange Wright says he bought the coins from, WMIRK, didn't deal in Bitcoin until two years after Wright says they sold them to him. The claim that Wright phoned in his order is implausible and at the same time handily leaves no paper trail. The template on which the purchase order was based wasn't released until 2015, four years after Lynn Wright supposedly made it. An image of Russian text on the purchase order, which purports to be some kind of logo for WMIRK, translates as service news, while its very presence is odd given that the invoice was created by TTL and not by WMIRK, and so it had absolutely no right to be there. Arthur, there's supposedly some report done by a firm called Alex Partners, which, surprise surprise, dates the creation of the purchase order to the exact date of the document, but there are even issues with this report, aren't there? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I really wonder how Alex partners uh, must be feeling and I wouldn't be in their shoes. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the guy who wrote uh, the report, Mr. Maduro, 
He must be feeling very uh, awkward uh, at the moment, I'm sure, because the forensic report about the purchase order is being completely destroyed in this uh, filing. And they don't give much away uh, at the moment because they are saying that it will be addressed in uh, in court in detail. But Alice notes that, now I'll quote, the report itself states that PDF contents cannot be validated with 100% certainty and, critically, that the timestamps of the PDF documents are unreliable. Now, Mark, don't forget, this purchase order is a key piece of evidence uh, for Craig Wright in this uh, case uh, to make a claim on uh, the one fix uh, address. Mm-hmm. But the Bitcoin uh, developers, uh, they simply also note, uh, meanwhile, the report also fails to explain the time zone discrepancy in the PDF. So, uh, oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nee, so, so there's everything is wrong with the purchase order that you can uh, imagine. It is uh, not from uh, the time frame that Craig uh, claims it is, which was February 2011. It was built on a recreated uh, template from 2015 or even later. So we know already that, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is a forgery. And Alex partners, and that's why I don't want to be in their shoes uh, in court uh, in the upcoming uh, days, weeks, or months when they are gonna discuss this uh, these matters. Yeah, Alex partners uh, endorsed this forgery, and and the Bitcoin developers managed uh, to uh, to debunk it uh, thoroughly. It seems to me with this. Alex Partners report, this is another example of the Craig touch, where this could have been a totally reputable firm until Craig Wright got his hands on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's indeed uh, a good a good analysis, the Craig, uh, the Craig touch. Uh, and every group that uh, Craig is joining, uh, he will bring down uh, the average uh, IQ of that uh, group because he will influence uh, their narratives. And uh, yeah, that's not for the best, so to say. We then have the fact that the coins that ended up at the OneFix address did in fact belong to Mt. Gox, and that the movement Wright says was WMIRK handing him the coins was in fact the hackers moving the coins from a Mt. Gox wallet to their own. Ironically, Wright has questioned the authenticity of the Skype chat between Mark Karpolis and Jed McCaleb discussing this at the time, and has also pointed to the fact that TTL asked for any potential owners of the OneFix address to come forward in 2022, and nobody did. However, Carpolis openly discussed the exchange's ownership of the OneFeeks coins at the time, and surely he wouldn't claim ownership of the coins that the exchange didn't actually own in fear of the tax implications of doing so. Right, Craig? For a thorough debunk of the purchase order and the convoluted set of circumstances surrounding it, see our June bonus episode. Towards the end of the filing, Ellis adds a few interesting quotes from Oliver Kane, Wright's former solicitor at Ontier, who noted that Wright has, quote, few documentary records of TTL's acquisition of the digital assets and no contemporaneous evidence of the purchase of the 12IB7 address, and adds that it, quote, has to be accepted that there are inconsistencies in some documents that might evidence ownership. Ellis calls this a, quote, generous understatement and adds that, quote, the limited documents relied upon are fabrications. Little wonder Ontier is no longer around. Ellis signs off by asking for around a week to 10 days worth of court time to explore the ownership issue and says that the costs would be in the region of £1.4 million, arguing that were the defendants to win, it would save a hell of a lot of public time and money given that a full trial would be unnecessary. He also adds that in excess of 20 witnesses would be called by the Bitcoin developers to give evidence against rights ownership claims. 
Arthur, we know Wright prefers witnesses to evidence, but if this goes ahead, who on earth can he call on? Are we going to get Lynn Wright on the stand telling us how she made the purchase order? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Um, <laughs> it, it, and she will, of course, tell that she doesn't remember, or uh, I don't know. But, <laughs> oh, uh, yes. It, it, yeah. It, because it's, it's, it's 100% impossible that she had anything uh, to do with it. But okay, let's see. Mm. But uh, returning to the, to the 20 witnesses that are mentioned, it are actually the, uh, the Bitcoin developers who claim that they might bring in uh, those 20 witnesses. They include uh, themselves in that number, for your information. And next they say that they might call miners, investors and exchanges or other contributors to the Bitcoin Core software that have not been named as defendants. And that's how they think that they might bring in a total of maybe in excess of 20 witnesses uh, would be called. Mm -hmm. Tim Ellis is also demanding a security deposit of £1.25 million from Wright if this preliminary trial were to go ahead. So the defendants can be sure of getting their costs back if they win. Well, when they win, surely. Um, And he gave a number of reasons exactly why this was necessary. What were these reasons? Well... After setting up a, a long list of failures to pay anything, like in the climate and hodl knot cases, uh, silly claims and lame excuses that Craig doesn't own anything and he has no shares in any company, etc., they conclude, and I'll quote, on the evidence, it is clear that neither TTL nor Dr. Wright would be able to pay the significant costs likely to be incurred by the NEO defendants if ordered to do so. Given the impecuniosity mm-hmm. condition applies, it is just to order security unless TTL can show that to do so will stifle the claim. TTL have produced no evidence to demonstrate as such. Shock horror. Yeah, exactly. So what are the arguments against this preliminary trial? Obviously, we can't see into the judge's mind, but one immediate factor is whether the claim and the supporting evidence is strong enough to warrant its own trial when it could all be decided, along with all the other arguments and evidence in the main trial. This will naturally be the argument put forward by Wright's team, that this is exactly what a trial is designed to do, and it would be unfairly prejudicial to their case if Wright was denied the chance to fully defend himself in all aspects. Clearly, whether TTL owns the coins in the first place is a core issue, given that there would be no case if it could be proved in advance that it didn't. But ordering an entire mini-trial around a sole point in isolation is not something that judges typically do, preferring to have everything examined in its entirety. Wright's legal team will need to file a defence before the judge can decide on this matter, so we can expect a ruling on this towards the end of the year. Staying in Lawsuit Corner, Craig Wright this month won an appeal over one of three aspects of the copyright cases that was rejected back in February, this one over the file format issue. We explored this much more in our March bonus episode, but Arthur, what are the copyright cases and who are the defendants in this one? Well, those are about uh, the white paper copyright, the database and the file format uh, issues, Mark. There's now a pretty long row of cases going on, so I can imagine that uh, it's hard to keep track of uh, everything going on, and, and that includes me, Mark. But Craig himself uh, calls these uh, the passing off cases, I think. The passing off cases is only Coinbase and Kraken, and that long list of defendants is in the, in the copyright cases. The key question for the High Court judge, Justice Meller, was with regard to a term called fixation, which states that copyright will not subsist in a literary work unless and until it is recorded in some way. This led him to ask the question, 
When and in what form was the alleged literary work in the Bitcoin file format first recorded? He ruled that without the actual structure of the Bitcoin file format being defined in a material form, there would be no recorded work for copyright purposes. If you want more detail on this, then please check out the appeal court ruling, which has pages of the stuff, but we won't go into that here because I don't think any of us could stand it. I'll jump instead to the appeal judge's summary, which says that, quote, Dr. Wright has a real prospect of successfully establishing that the fixation requirement is satisfied and allowed the appeal. This means that all three strands of Wright's copyright case will go through to trial, although, as we now know, if Wright is judged to not be Satoshi in the identity issue of the Copa case in January, it won't go ahead anyway. Justice Miller has been a busy boy this week, also ruling on the securities costs in the Kraken and Coinbase passing off cases. As with the pineapple hack case, Kraken and Coinbase both wanted Wright to pay a lump sum ahead of the trial as a guarantee of their legal costs should Wright lose. Coinbase wanted £339,000 were the lawsuit to be stayed pending the identity issue, or £3.2 million for a full trial, whereas Kraken wanted slightly less, £205,000 for a stayed trial, or £2.7 million for a full trial. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Wright tried his best to wriggle out of these costs. After all, it's hard to pay for lawsuits when you don't own anything, and this led to a bumper and unexpectedly enticing ruling, and one where Wright's chickens well and truly came home to roost. Kraken and Coinbase pointed out the numerous times Wright has openly boasted about moving all his assets around to the point where none of them are supposedly connected to him, meaning he is untouchable if anybody demands money from him. Not exactly what a judge wants to hear in these circumstances. Arthur, the exchanges also brought up the Tulip Trust. What did they have to say about it? Well, basically that according to them, the Tulip Trust doesn't exist, hey. which is also something that, <laughs> that I have been saying for so many years. Mm. Uh, but listen to what they said, uh, Mark. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, the defendants point to inconsistent testimony which Dr. Wright has given about the Tulip Trust. Number one, in his second witness statement for this application, Dr. Wright says the Tulip Trust is a trust of which he is a beneficiary and in respect of which his wife is a trustee. Number two, in the Kleiman versus Wright proceedings in the US, however, Dr. Wright claimed that he is the trustee and the second claimant and Tulip Trading Limited are the beneficiaries. <laughs> the judge found Dr. Wright to have given false testimony about the Tulip Trust and the evidence was found not to substantiate the trust's existence. End of quote. But in a follow-up paragraph they state, the defendants do not accept that the trust exists or exists in the form alleged by Dr. Wright. In any event, they say Dr. Wright's own statements make it clear that the claimants have deliberately used a trust and other vehicles to move assets around to avoid enforcement and will continue to do so. End of quote. Yeah, what else is there to say? This is this is how it is, Mark. Well, this this is the the shape-shifting chimera that is the Tulip Trust, the most malleable financial trust that ever existed. I think so, yeah. <laughs> now, Justice Meller also noted that, quote, all of this evidence, which was not really disputed, casts a shadow over a number of issues I have to consider. And indeed, some of his rulings are worth going into here. Before we start, Arthur, Wright International Investments is named as a claimant in this. What is that? Well, Wright International Investments is an Seychelles vehicle that Craig Wright has owned for quite a few years, somewhere around 2010, I think it was. 
But recently he also raised, last year, a company in the United Kingdom with the exact same name. But in this lawsuit, I think he's using the Seychelles uh, company, which he claims eventually became, along with Craig Wright R&D, the Julep Trust. But again, that is rubbish. Mm -hmm. The first thing Justice Mellis said was that he was, quote, not satisfied by the evidence from Wright that Wright International Investments is resident in the UK, which is important due to the fact that this is a UK-based case. Arthur, what evidence did Wright try and put forward for this, and how did it go down? Yeah, Craig said that he is doing the bookkeeping and record storing and board meetings of this company from his home office, uh, which is in the UK, because Craig lives in the UK, as we uh, all know. But this was not enough uh, to convince uh, the judge, uh, Mark. Then Craig said the company has a business registration in the United Kingdom under the IBC Act of 2016. And again, this was not a convincing enough for the judge because he said, and I'll quote again, as for the second point, a registration under the IBC Act tells one nothing about where the company is resident. So number two is down the drain. Mm -hmm. Craig's third attempt to convince the judge was a comparison with Tulip Trading Limited. And here we go, also that Seychelles company that Craig bought in 2014 also has a UK counterpart in the meantime, also raised in 2022, I think. Mm -hmm. But to that, the judge simply said, the third point carries no weight at all. Claimant two, which is Right, international investments, was compared to Tulip Trading Limited, which was found to be a resident in the United Kingdom in Tulip Trading Limited versus the Bitcoin Association for BSV uh, lawsuit. However, as the defendants submitted in that action, in that lawsuit, Dr. Wright gave evidence that he was the CEO and beneficial owner of Tulip Trading Limited hmm. and controlled his assets using keys from his home office. And the contrast with the evidence as regards to claimant two, uh, right international investments, is striking. Mm. That is what the judge uh, said. So, yeah, he, he completely burns down Craig's uh, narrative about uh, right international investments being in a UK uh, company. The judge just doesn't believe it. Yep. Justice Meller also undermined Craig Wright's evidence by saying that with Wright International Investments being in the Seychelles, there were, quote, significant obstacles to enforcement of any order for costs against it. Arthur, what were these obstacles? Yeah, the biggest problem they foresee is that dealing with a company behind high walls, uh, like you get in, in the Seychelles, the Coinbase lawyers say that it could cost between $25,000 to $30,000 to recover any funds from Wright International Investments, which could take between 12 and 24 months. Wow. And the Kraken lawyer also pointed out that the Seychelles has not much experience in dealing with the collection of cryptocurrencies, or cryptocurrencies at all, and they are not even recognized as property under the Seychelles law yet. Oh, wow. So here you go, Mark. The reasoning of the judge. And that last sentence, I think, uh, says it all, uh, if you ask me, that if uh, cryptocurrencies uh, are not being recognized as property under the social law, yeah, then it will be close to impossible to uh, recover any funds from uh, from the Seychelles if needed. Like they said, you're going to burn through money just to try and get it back. It's going to be very, very hard. Justice Miller then turned to the evidence of Wright's long-term accountant, John Cheshire, who made the astonishing claim that Wright International Investments holds assets worth $16.5 billion, comprising intellectual property, as well as Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV. 
Arthur, I have my theory as to as to this, but how do you think he came to that figure? Uh, yeah, well, I'm having trouble figuring out how he gets to that number, to be fair, because take the Satoshi stash, which is what Satoshi mined, or Craig Wright claims that he mined as Satoshi in 2009 and 2010, and then multiply those numbers with the current market prices. Craig is using a number around 820,000 mined coins uh, these days, and then I have to multiply that with uh, $30,000 uh, around, which is the total of all these coins uh, together. BCH and BSV plus uh, Bitcoin, I th uh, the total uh, market price of that is uh, $30,000. Well, then you multiply with 820,000, then I get to $24.6 billion, which is a much larger number. So yeah, yeah. you tell me how uh, Cheshire is, uh, is getting to his number. Uh, I think Craig Wright said, write this number down and he put it down. That's all I think it was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's very likely indeed, yeah. <laughs> The arguments against this calculation take up about a third of the ruling, so we won't go through them all here, but essentially, Kraken and Coinbase argue that John Cheshire doesn't have the qualifications or experience to be able to assess a company like Wright International Investments, and that he can't be trusted because of his close relationship with Craig Wright. They also add, rather unsurprisingly, given who the client is here, that Cheshire's evidence, quote, contains numerous flaws and is demonstrably unreliable, before listing their most egregious criticisms. Arthur, what were some of your favourites here? Well, it was quite a list of flaws. Uh, I went through it and uh, I picked uh, my two favourites uh, from it. it. It would be too much to, uh, to mention them all, but my two favourites are around uh, the Satoshi uh, stash. Yes. Because listen to what the judge uh, said. I'll, uh, I'll quote mm -hmm. uh, point four and point six about this. And you're going to love this. Mm-hmm. The 60,404 blocks of BTC relied upon in Mr. Cheshire's calculations are apparently the same BTC relied upon in the climate versus right proceedings. Some of that BTC belongs to Satoshi Nakamoto. Some, not all. Hmm. And we know why, because that list was signed, but that's another story. If the claimants do not win these proceedings, they will have no basis on which they lay any claim to such assets. The defendants also do not accept that the claimants or either of them own those assets. In the seven years since the first claimant first publicly claimed to be Satoshi Nakamoto, he has failed, despite many requests, to produce any evidence that he has been able to identify, let alone access the BTC belonging to Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm. Yeah, and that's true. It's so simple, but it's so effective. If you don't get this ruling, you're not Satoshi, you don't have access to this money, you can't use this money for anything. Yep, exactly. Well, then we have paragraph number six, my second favorite. Mr. Cheshire's asset calculations contains discrepancies, namely, there are no spends or transfers of BTC since 2012, yet there have been spends from multiple addresses listed on the climate list since 2018. Hmm. Mr. Cheshire also states that the total number of BTC held by the second claimant is 890,818. But 60,404 sets of 50 BTC, and that is the mining subsidy of those addresses, mm -hmm. are listed. And 16,404 sets of 50 BTC should equal 820,200. There is a difference between 819,000 and 820,000. And of course, that is uh, a discrepancy. 
See, yet again, that to me has the appearance of Craig Wright doing a rushed calculation, getting it wrong and telling his accountant to put this down and the accountant hasn't checked it. That's how it appears to me, yeah. The defendants finish off their obliteration by saying that the billions in cryptocurrencies can't be used as a security because they're volatile and illiquid, with Wright giving no indication of how he would actually sell such large amounts quickly should he need to. And we're not done yet. Kraken and Coinbase then moved on to the subject of Wright's funding, pointing out several reasons why he can't be trusted to pay up if he loses. These include Wright's solicitor, a Ms. Keane, explaining how Calvin Ayer is, quote, not providing litigation funding of the claims in a traditional sense, but the companies related to him have invested in various businesses of Dr. Wright by way of debt and venture funding. Kraken and Coinbase argue that this shows that Wright can't afford his own lawsuits, also pointing out that Craig Wright paid for the McCormack case with a massive loan from Calvin Ayer in BSV. The next point is that Wright is basing his claim of being able to pay any costs incurred on the suggestion that he has access to Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin without evidence, that Wright has racked up hundreds of millions of dollars in legal bills across various cases that he hasn't paid, which Wright amazingly disputes, arguing in a sworn statement that he has not held any assets since 2017, and finally, that the Tulip Trust doesn't exist, calling any evidence for its existence, quote, entirely unsatisfactory. Even if it does exist, they say, there is no clarity about the assets it holds or their value, with Wright saying that he can only access the assets with authorization from his wife, Ramona Ang, but there is no indication from her that she would agree to this or whether the contents would cover the proceedings. And so to the ruling. Justice Miller said that while the evidence over John Cheshire had, quote, considerable force, he didn't need to rule on it in a formal manner, and so folded it all into the other evidence. This led him to the following conclusion, quote, Taking the most favourable view of that evidence for the C's, the claimants, in all the circumstances, it does not persuade me that either C2, Wright International Investments, or C1, Craig Wright, has substantial liquid assets which could be readily available to meet the substantial cost liabilities which might arise in these two actions. Justice Miller added that he found the nature of Wright International Investments business activities, quote, obscure, but because of its presence in the lawsuit, stated that it would be held jointly liable for the costs borne. Arthur, on the surface, this is interesting because the company would have to actually send some money out, possibly in the millions of dollars in the end. But what are the odds that Craig Wright simply creates a construction to pay its bills without the money ever touching it? Um... Yeah, that is very likely the case, uh, of course. These vehicles are basically empty companies, so Craig can use them for all kinds of uh, mostly fraudulent uh, or close to fraudulent uh, reasons. Mm. So now he is using them to uh, to front some uh, fraudulent uh, lawsuits. Yeah, he can't dare let them be seen as actual companies with money coming in and out, can he? Because they just aren't. No, they're just empty shelf companies that he is using for yeah for all kinds of uh, purposes. And what we noticed uh, a while back in in, uh, in some lawsuit, uh, it popped up that uh, other companies related to uh, Calvin Air are actually paying uh, the bills for uh, Craig Wright. We then move on to a very interesting aspect of the ruling. Quote, The evidence overall presents a remarkably obscure picture as to which person or entity on the C's, claimant's, side owns precisely which Bitcoin assets to which Dr. Wright has ready access. In particular, it was not made clear which Bitcoin mentioned in C's evidence might or might not be the subject of the claim in the Tulip Trust case. 
That very obscure picture, along with the statements made by Dr. Wright, provides no reassurance that either C2 or C1 has or will have funds to pay costs. Arthur, the reason why I find this passage so interesting is because this guy is in charge of a lot of Craig Wright's UK cases, and he is pulling no punches with his view of the Tulip Trust here. Make no bones about it, this is undeniably bad for Craig Wright, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. This stance not only caused the judge to rule that the security should be paid, but no doubt this will also resonate in, in other lawsuits of Craig Wright. More and more we see that information from all these lawsuits with Craig Wright involved is shared between cases mm-hmm. and is quoted by councils and, and judges alike. Yeah, it's just piling up. Yeah. And one thing I noticed in the ruling as well was that Justice Miller called the rates Coinbase's lawyers were charging, quote, very significantly above the guideline rates. But Craig Wright should be used to paying these kind of rates, shouldn't he? (laughs) Yeah, indeed. (laughs) I remember what he claimed in in other cases, for example, the Peter McCormick case, he came up with millions, I think, double the amount of... uh, uh, just by head, uh, I'm doing this, but I think it was double or triple the amount of what uh, Peter McCormick spent on uh, on the lawsuit. And uh, you might also remember the Cobra Bitcoin uh, case, where I think he claimed that he spent eight, $800,000 for just a few letters uh, back yeah. and forth and, uh, and, and, and one short hearing of... Uh, maybe one or two hours and yeah my goodness it i mean it's fraudulent to pump up these bills so much it's crazy the upshot of all this was that craig wright and wright international investments will have to share initial securities costs of four hundred thousand pounds two hundred and fifty thousand pounds to coinbase and one hundred and fifty thousand pounds to kraken Arthur, this may not seem like much, but it will be interesting to see where he gets this money from, given that he's supposedly as poor as a church mouse. And also, this is just one of a number of cases Craig Wright will have to pay such securities costs on if they go ahead. So actually, this could lead to more interesting times when it reaches the millions, couldn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that uh, Kelvin is uh, not wanting to fund any more of uh, Craig's lawsuits. So what happens to the cases if Craig is suddenly having to pay millions up front? Will he have to drop them? I think so, and let's let's hope so at least. I can see it happen with this uh, £400,000 security already, uh, to be fair, Mark, because I don't think he has uh, that amount of money, and if Calvin is not willing to pay it, it's end of story. Mm-hmm. Also, for me, the content of the ruling was more important than the ruling itself. This guy, the, the judge, He's already not impressed by rights ducking and diving, his trust and his Seychelles companies and all the rest of it. And he's taken one look at the evidence and he's just seen right through him, hasn't he? I think uh, that's a fair analysis. That's indeed what happened. This judge uh, picked it all apart uh, very nicely. This case, like almost all other UK cases, will only go ahead if Wright wins on the identity issue. But the way in which Kraken and Coinbase's evidence was taken by the judge bodes very well for this case and the Copa case. We've also had some developments in the Kleiman versus Wright case this month regarding Wright's potential contempt of court charge over the 1.977 debtors form. To recap, Wright was asked to fill in this form in January, which is a standard form that any non-paying debtor in a court case has to fill in to aid collection. Wright put off filling in the form for months, and then eventually, on the day of the deadline imposed by Judge Reinhardt, sent something resembling the form, but which offered nothing of any informative value whatsoever. 
Wright claimed that this was because he hadn't owned anything in his own name since 2017 and had no idea who owned his house, his cars or his multifarious trusts, which was why he couldn't fill it in. Judge Reinhardt wasn't buying this, however, and set a date of July 26th where Wright would need to explain to him why he wasn't able to fill in things like the name of his employer and his phone number, while his law firm, Rivero Mestre, was told to explain why this semi-filled-in piece of waste paper was designated attorney's eyes only. For more on this, see our May update. Before we go into the developments regarding this form, we need to touch on a motion for judicial notice which W&K's lawyers filed on the 11th of July. This sought to make the judge aware of certain material ahead of Wright's contempt of court hearing, notably four witness statements by Wright in the Ramona Ang versus Reliantco case of 2020, which we're yet to cover in this podcast, as well as two exhibits pertaining to them. Arthur, why did Val Friedman want to add these statements in particular? Well, the main reason is, and uh, I'll quote Val, these witness statements contain information related to Wright's claim that he has no insight into or ability to access financial information related to his wife and the claim that he and his wife keep their finances separate. So in other words, in the Reliantco lawsuit, Craig Wright probably said the complete opposite uh, as what he is saying in the in the climate case and Phil Friedman, of course, will want to use that information against him. Two days later, Friedman asked for another witness statement to be added, this one from the Pineapple Hack case, where Wright claims that more than a billion dollars worth of cryptocurrencies were stolen from Tulip Trading Limited, or TTL, in 2020. The reason why Friedman wanted to include this document is likely to do with the following claim made by Wright in that statement. Quote, The ultimate beneficial owners of TTL are my wife, me, and our children, two of whom live in England and one in Australia. The relevant trusts to which these shares in TTL are subject are governed by English law. Its main asset is the Bitcoin in the addresses, which I could control using the keys located on my computer at my home in Surrey. I therefore control the affairs of TTL in England. This, again, shows Wright claiming to have access to a king's ransom at a time when he has said he has no assets to his name. Rivero Mestre's argument against this was staggering. Quote, WNK's motion for judicial notice may as well be entitled Motion to Admit Rank Hearsay, because that's what it is. Though WNK does not specify how it intends to use the documents at the July 26 hearing, its intent is obvious. WNK plans to use these documents to contend that Dr. Wright submitted statements in a UK proceeding that contradict information he supplied on the fact information sheet. From there, one supposes, W&K will argue that the information contained, or missing from, the FIS is false because what Dr Wright represented to the UK court is true. That is hearsay of the plainest sort. Arthur, I had to read this three times when I first saw it. Are Rivero Mestre really saying that Wright's submissions to the UK courts might not be true? What kind of a defence is that? (laughs) amazing stuff this is right that's incredible (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely they are really saying that Craig Wright's UK trial testimony is hearsay and cannot be relied upon (laughs) and yet the UK defendants are being sued because it is supposed to be true (laughs) I really want to see Judge Reinhardt uh, pick this one uh, apart in a ruling oh it's brilliant what an attempt 
Unsurprisingly, Vel Friedman pointed out that this rank hearsay was Wright's own sworn testimony, not some conversation heard down the pub at kicking out time, and pointed out the inconsistencies in Wright's stories between the US and UK courts. He's in control of vast sums of Bitcoin and has his own finances when it suits him in one country, but by the time he flies over the Atlantic Ocean, he has had no assets since 2017, and he and his wife have only joint finances. Arthur, it seems that Craig Wright's ever-changing stories are finally catching up with him, doesn't it? Yeah, you can say that again. It's been a long time coming and we've been waiting for a day like this, but finally he has realised that you can't say opposing things in lawsuits uh, all the time and uh, get away with it. Mm -hmm. So again, please let Judge uh, Reinhardt uh, drop a bomb on this uh, Craig Wright nonsense. Friedman also noted that Wright's team weren't prepared to accept his sworn testimony to UK courts, but they were prepared to accept the entirely unauthenticated material that dropped on the eve of Wright's contempt hearing. Arthur, what did arrive at this 11th hour? Well, Craig finally realised that he could get the information for the sheet after all. So <laughs> after months of saying everything is not in his name, he doesn't own anything, and he doesn't know who does, right before he is about to be pulled up for content, he somehow manages to find lots of the information he needs <laughs> to potentially avoid the content charge. A surprise. Most of it has been uh, sealed, so we won't know the details, but again, it shows that Craig will continue to pull uh, the wool over uh, the judge's eyes and plead ignorance uh, until he is literally left with uh, no choice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, Craig Wright's contempt of court hearing took place today, the day of our recording, so we'll likely have more on the outcome of that one in our next update. What we do know, however, is that Judge Reinhardt refused to take judicial notice of Wright's witness statements, although he did rule that he, quote, found that the statements were properly authenticated by plaintiff, which is Ira Kleiman, and were admissible as statements of a party opponent. Now, in a legal context, a statement of a party opponent, uh, I'll quote from chat GPT here, refers to a type of evidence that can be admitted in court under certain circumstances. It is a statement made by one of the parties involved in the case that's offered as evidence against that party. Now, from the, the limited research I've been able to do since we first heard about this, it seems that what Judge Reinhardt is saying is that he will take this evidence under advisement, but he, but he won't treat it with the same level of seriousness as he would have done if he'd accepted it as a judicial notice. So, Arthur, it seems that he is taking it on board, but he just might not give it as much credence as he could have done. That is how I interpret it also. For me, this uh, this is legal uh, nitty-gritty that uh, I also, like you, have to dive into uh, a bit more mm -hmm. uh, before I understand what's uh, what's going on. But as you said, this is, uh, this is how it looks like, yeah. And that's not all for this frankly overcrowded lawsuit corner. This month, we also saw the ruling on Craig Wright's appeal over the £1 verdict in the Peter McCormack libel case. As a recap on this one, Justice Chamberlain concluded that Peter McCormack had caused serious harm to Craig Wright's reputation through a series of tweets, but said that, had he known about the deliberately false case Wright put before the court in the first place, he would have ruled the other way. For a full rundown of this incredible case, see our Wright vs McCormack triple header bonus episodes. Because of Wright's deceptive practices, he was only awarded one of the £100,000 in damages he had sought, with Calvin Eyre blaming this, once again, on inferior judges getting things wrong. 
Wright's team appealed, saying the false case Wright put forward all the way until trial shouldn't have counted against him to the extent of such a reduction in the award, but the three appeal judges struck this out, saying that Justice Chamberlain was correct in applying the law the way he did. Wright's reaction was somewhat extraordinary. Quote, I am very disappointed that the Court of Appeal has not given due recognition to the damage caused to me by orchestrated online vitriol. Such abusive communications, viewable worldwide, have had a severe impact on me and my well-being. The trolling narrative is purely designed to unfairly and improperly denigrate my life's work. Given the finding of serious harm, I am disappointed that the compensatory damages due from McCormack remain diminished, not for their monetary value, but for the message this sends to potential future perpetrators of detrimental mistruths online. Arthur, we would need another half an hour to go through just how ridiculous these statements are, but this last bit really got me. He's apparently worried that the £1 ruling sends a bad message that people can spread online mistruths and get away with it. He knows full well that the message this sends out is if your lawsuit is based on lies, then you get everything you deserve, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, but in, in a sense, Craig Wright is uh, actually right because since he was awarded uh, £1 for these uh, libelous uh, statements of Peter McCormick, I have seen more than once on Twitter that people are making jokes about uh, insulting uh, our fake Toshi. Uh, that because, uh, worst case, it will only cost uh, £1 if you uh, <laughs> tell him that, <laughs> that he is a fraud on fake Toshi. Yeah. yeah. Call him a fraud and send him a pound. <laughs> mm hmm. Yes. Calvin Ayer's reaction was also interesting, saying, quote, Craig won the case and that is all that really matters, reinforcing the notion that he's totally happy with someone lying their way through a court case if that's what it takes to win. Sound business principles, indeed. Let's not forget too that in 2021, when this case was going through the preliminary stages, he had boasted that Wright would be able to afford to pay for his own lawsuit due to the millions he was going to receive from Peter McCormack. Where's that checkbook, Calvin? Now, Craig Wright can appeal this all the way to the Supreme Court if he wants, but the Supreme Court will first have to agree to hear the case, and there's no guarantee that they will, given that four judges have all ruled in the same way. Naturally, we'll let you know as soon as we hear something on this front. Outside of Lawsuit Corner, but sticking with the identity issue, the BSV camp was abuzz with new evidence of Wright's Satoshi claim this month, which surfaced from former BSV Twitter enthusiast Whale Chart. The new evidence turned out to be nothing more than a post from Wright's old, now-deleted blog dated January 10th, 2009, which read, quote, The beta of Bitcoin is live tomorrow. This is decentralised. We try until it works. Arthur, this is neither new nor evidence, and I humbly invite you to destroy this inside 60 seconds. Will you need that long? <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> this is an, um, uh, a 2014 uh, blog forgery from the early days of uh, Craig Wright's uh, Satoshi cosplay and uh, from the era that he didn't know much about uh, Bitcoin in its history uh, yet. Well, he still doesn't know much, but back then it was even worse. <laughs> Craig backdated this little blog post to January the 10th of 2009, claiming that Bitcoin would go live tomorrow. But in reality, Bitcoin was already live, uh, of course, since uh, January the 3rd, when the Genesis block was, uh, was formed and shaped. But for me, a major miss, 
Satoshi, back in the days, he didn't call Bitcoin beta, but he called it alpha. Uh, again, we're talking about January 2009. At that moment in time, Bitcoin was called alpha. And uh, uh, the real Satoshi called uh, Bitcoin alpha all the way up to October, the end of October, October 29 of 2009, he called Bitcoin alpha. So when Craig Wright in a backdated blog post, backdated to January 2009, and he calls Bitcoin beta. Hmm. Uh-uh. <laughs> Satoshi. So that's a big, big mistake of uh, Craig uh, again. Quickly, for those who may not know, how can we tell that these blog posts are backdated? Yeah, that is quite easy to find out because you have several, um, for example, I use the Wayback Machine a lot, but there's also uh, Archive Today and another one, but those two I use uh, a lot. Snapshots of uh, history of, uh, of Craig's blog uh, have been kept on, uh, on those uh, websites. And uh, you can just scroll uh, back to the year, for example, 2009, and look what was on his blog at that moment. If you take, for example, uh, halfway 2009, you go uh, to the link of Craig's blog and you look back uh, a few months what was all on his blog, then you will not find this Bitcoin going live uh, post. Only much later in those snapshots, late 2014 by head, you will find this blog post for the first time. And then he is making some alterations in 2015. And at the end of 2015, at December 8 or 9, he starts deleting all that stuff. And then you will see in those snapshots that uh, suddenly the Bitcoin <laughs> blog post has disappeared. <laughs> so yeah, th th that's how it is quite easy to, uh, to date uh, these uh, things. Of course, they do not make uh, every minute a snapshot. So you can be off by a few weeks, maybe sometimes a few months. But it is uh, pretty clear in this case that uh, somewhere in 2014, this blog post was created by uh, Craig and backdated in, inside his own blog uh, to uh, January 2009. The responses to this serving of fake news porridge were predictable. Believers ignored the fact that the blog post had been debunked years ago and simply used it as more proof of Wright's candidacy, with one respondent damning Wright with faint praise by saying, quote, Craig has to save his highest quality proof for the Copa court case. Satoshi can't put his cards on the table yet. The usual crowd retweeted and reinforced this message in the post. But Arthur, it's gratifying to see the number of dismissive responses to tweets like this, isn't it? I think it shows that more and more people are starting to speak out against him. Oh yeah, for sure. But again, there's still a number, and not many luckily, but there's still a number of uh, people buying this already debunked uh, but rehashed uh, nonsense, which is a pity. So we have to keep on uh, entertaining them with uh, our information. That's how I see it. This month, we also saw Craig Wright argue with and eventually block someone over their interpretation of the term open source, which is of course at the heart of more than one of his UK court cases. Wright claimed on Twitter that Bitcoin was not created under the GNU General Public Licence, which would allow anyone to change the code, and argued instead that it was open source, which, to quote his tweet, means that you can read the code, but can't edit it. He received a reply from one Kat Walsh, who argued that this is not the definition of open source that the rest of the open source community uses, shock horror, and that the MIT licence Bitcoin was released under is, quote, pretty clear about allowing modification. Arthur, for a quick recap, what's the importance of modification within Bitcoin and how does it affect Craig Wright's argument? 
what we see happen in, in those projects is that uh, bug fixes are uh, done and new features are introduced in, uh, in the protocol. Satoshi, how he set it up with open source and, uh, and many uh, developers uh, cooperating to, uh, to make progress for, uh, for Bitcoin. But it, uh, it appears that Craig Wright has a different uh, stance. He wants to have it uh, closed source and uh, he wants to have the protocol uh, ossified early as uh, possible, which means that it is set in stone. Now, yeah, this, this is not how, how Satoshi set it up. The problem for Wright is that he wasn't disagreeing with any old troll, but the general counsel for Creative Commons, who had clearly had enough of his bad takes and wanted to put him straight. This first interaction came at the end of June, and things seemed to have calmed down from that point, but Wright was at it again this month, tweeting that, quote, Bitcoin is digital cash. The code is licensed under MIT open source, as this is instrumental to its auditability and transparency. Adding that, quote, Open source software, OSS, plays a significant role in promoting trust and security in Bitcoin. The thing that is misrepresented is Bitcoin is OSS. It was never FOSS, which stands for free and open source software. Walsh disagreed and told him so, tweeting, quote, This is a confused statement. The MIT license is a FOSS license. GNU licenses are not the only FOSS licenses. It grants everyone the ability to modify the software and redistribute their modifications. Wright then tried to correct her, asking her to, quote, please try to be more honest, and advised her to, quote, maybe take Business Law 101 so she would, quote, understand fees. Then he blocked her, saying he does not, quote, put up with communists. Arthur, Craig Wright's grandiosity has got to the point where he thinks he knows more about open source software than people who litigate around it for a living. And then to make matters worse, he calls her a communist. I think people like Cat Walsh must feel like they've been involved in some sort of drive-by or something. All they're doing is trying, politely in fact, to correct someone regarding their area of expertise and for that they get demeaned, blocked and then called a communist. I was led to believe that Satoshi appreciated input from experts. Yeah, we know several examples where uh, Satoshi uh, thanked uh, the Bitcoin community for their input. A beautiful example is, uh, I think it was somewhere in 2010, Helfini, the famous Helfini, uh, said on the Bitcoin forum that he found uh, Bitcoin an impressive piece of machinery. And then Satoshi replied, uh, oh, that really means uh, something to me uh, coming from you, uh, Hal. So you can see that, that he was respectful. Also later in, I think, April 2011, when he still had contact with a few developers like Mike Hearn and Gavin Andreessen, he said, make it about the developers. They like it when they can help uh, for, for Bitcoin. All over, he was respectful. He was uh, thankful for, um, yeah, for, 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 for the jobs being done on, on Bitcoin by others. Mm. And here is Craig Wright. He is putting them down, actually. He mm. is insulting them and calling them communists because they don't agree with him. Mm. So, yeah, Satoshi would have never called someone a communist because they don't share his uh, viewpoint, uh, Mark. No, absolutely. We also found out something interesting regarding BSV and open source from Reddit user Nervous Norbert, who I think we can identify. In the wake of this, what did he reveal? He figured out, and I will quote, Craig starts out with this, and then he quotes Craig. Bitcoin is digital cash. The code is licensed under MIT open source as this is instrumental to its auditability and transparency. 
But, Nervous Norbert says, BSV is specifically not licensed under MIT, but under their own homeworld OpenBSV license, which is not open source, OSS, or free, FOSS. They even filed it with the Open Source Initiative, which rejected it because it does not adhere to the open source definition. Mm -hmm. So when he says that Bitcoin is licensed under MIT, he is not referring to BSV, which is what he usually insists is Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Yet he says being licensed as MIT is instrumental. Brilliant. This is a big discrepancy um, being exposed by <laughs> Nervous Norbert. Yeah, isn't it just... Now, talking of experts, when I put Craig Wright's claims to that lawyer I mentioned earlier, he actually laughed out loud before saying that Craig Wright was totally wrong in his interpretation of open source and said that if Craig Wright was correct, then there would be no such thing as open source. He also said that he has a rule of thumb over these things. Cat Walsh is always right. I think we can look forward to this one being turfed out in court now, can't we? <laughs> yeah, as long as we don't get one of uh, Calvin Air's inexperienced uh, judges. Uh, yes. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> this month also saw a lengthy Forbes piece regarding Craig Wright, which focused on his patents and intellectual property, as well as his Satoshi claims. Arthur, you and I were both interviewed for this, but nothing of what we said made it in, at least not in a way attributable to us. Thankfully, at least David Pierce's insight was given a good airing. But what were your thoughts on this piece? Yeah, I was also a little uh, disappointed uh, indeed. The writer uh, clearly aimed for a puff piece about uh, Craig's patents, and he left out a lot of uh, the criticisms that, uh, that he uh, must have gathered uh, down the line, at least from us. Uh, so I quickly read the article and I forgot about it, uh, Mark, because long term those pieces will not leave a lasting uh, impression because the whole world knows the truth about Craig Wright. Look how Forbes handled uh, the, the White Gizmodo era. Eh? That is where uh, Craig Wright came uh, on the stage uh, as a Satoshi pretender. And I, will, I will quote. On December 8, 2015, Wright became a controversial public figure into the crypto world after Wired and Gizmodo published separate reports based on anonymous leaks, alleging there was a very good chance he was Satoshi Nakamoto, or, as Wired put it, a brilliant hoaxer who very badly wants us to believe. But Wright says, so here we see that... Uh, the journalist has contacted Wright for his response and then Wright says, quote, the Wired and Gizmodo articles are based on information from Ira Kleiman, nope, in order to fabricate a story about his brother that never occurred, nope, Ira forged documents, made false statements and used multiple emails to contact the journalists pretending to be multiple people. Nope. He did this in order to gain money he was not entitled to. Nope. Every time that I said nope, this is where I 100% I am sure that this is all lies. It are blatant lies by Craig Wright. So Forbes allows Craig Wright to simply wave it all away with a series of blatant lies and the journalist is not questioning it further. Mm. So yeah, shame on you, Forbes. Yeah, I get the impression that the guy came to us hoping that we would maybe back up some of Craig Wright's stories or something, and, and he didn't like what we said, perhaps, because it was too critical. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We end this month with a little look at Calvin Ayer's BSV transaction machine, CryptoFights. 
Twitter user Balzac posted a link to a YouTube review of Crypto Fights from NFT game reviewer Yuan, and it's quite something to behold. Arthur, for those who may not know, what is Crypto Fights supposed to be? <laughs> well, to be fair, I don't know Crypto Fights uh, in detail because I never play uh, online uh, games, and let alone uh, online games that are related to BSV. But of course, I put a little research in it, and this is an uh, online game where in-game payments are done with uh, BSV, if I'm right. And on the website, we can find uh, the following raving quotes. Fight for glory, own your victories. Prepare for the saga of crypto fights where heroes ascend, legends collide, and the destiny of Alderia hangs on the edge of your will. End of quote. So it's supposed to be uh, yeah, some game where you battle opponents in a fantasy world and win items and uh, BSV, whereas in reality it's just uh, yeah, rolling a dice like any of uh, Kelvin's casino games. So, does Crypto Fights live up to its claims? The answer is a resounding no, with Yuan saying that Crypto Fights, quote, brings an exciting twist to Web3 gaming by being borderline malware, excessively boring and entirely unpopulated. Wow. How does it manage this? Let's dig in. Yuan's first issue with CryptoFights is its terms and conditions, which, at the time of his review, stated that CryptoFights had a no-refund policy and could deny you winnings for any reason. Thankfully, these have now been removed. CryptoFights has also removed a line about accessing your machine remotely, quote, without your knowledge, to update the game, something that must have been canned because it gave pineapple hack victim Craig Wright too many flashbacks. Cryptofights originally also warned users that they did not actually own anything they won in the game, as the developers were, to quote Yuan, simply giving them to you on a license. Yuan also spotted what looked to be notes from a proofreader included in the terms and conditions, which just goes to show how ramshackle the entire operation is. When it came to gameplay, Yuan noticed something odd about the super-fast, unlimited scaling BSV blockchain. While moving forward to level 2, I noticed that the game had me wait in a queue before starting the match. That's right, I'm waiting in queue to start a single player game of crypto fights. Now, the queue is really quick, but why do I need to do this? What's going on? Well, as you'll see here at the bottom of the screen, crypto fights is waiting for a response from the blockchain before beginning the match. This is because all of your crypto fights take place as on-chain transactions. Once the game did get going, Yuan found that it didn't quite live up to the hype. After the blockchain transaction was confirmed and the battle began, I realized that the game has an auto battle feature. This is great, since there's no gameplay anyway, you just click a button and watch a dice roll. There's no reason to use any of your other abilities when you can just attack every turn, so auto battle it is. At this point, me playing crypto fights devolved into just clicking auto battle and then browsing the internet in a separate window while the game played itself. Yuan also found the game so dead that not one single P2P opponent showed up despite him waiting for 10 minutes, while the marketplace was flooded with identical items that players were trying to sell having won them in the game for free. No players means no buyers means no market, and no need to buy something you can just win by playing anyway. Yuan also found something interesting about the transactions in the game. Each battle generates around 10 to 15 transactions on the BSV blockchain, but most of them are, well, pointless, with the entries on the blockchain being just clones of what happens on the internal database. CryptoFight says that the benefit of the blockchain is to make it more open and transparent so as to reduce cheating, but Yuan disagreed. While it may make it publicly visible when someone is cheating, it doesn't actually stop them from cheating, 
nor does it prevent crypto fights from cheating the players. While the seed that the game chooses for each random dice throw is broadcast on the blockchain, so the players can see that the random numbers are not being altered mid-game, there's nothing stopping crypto fights from just giving you a rigged random number seed from the start, making all dice rolls favor the enemy. So from a transparency perspective, the choice to use the blockchain doesn't add any interesting utility as it neither prevents the player nor the developers from cheating. It just lets the public see that they're being cheated. Not really a useful form of anti-cheat, considering the cost of having all these transactions on the blockchain. Arthur, if it wasn't obvious before, this proves that CryptoFights is just another gambling enterprise masquerading as a Web3 game, isn't it? Yeah, it seems like it. Again, I'm not a gaming expert, but this doesn't even look like a game. It's, it's like I said before, rolling a dice and hoping that you win. And that's what I would call an, uh, a casino. Yeah, absolutely. Yuan then did some digging and found out some stats about the cost of the operation. Even when the game only had a player count of 200, it was projected that they were spending $2,434 in transaction fees daily. This adds up to almost $1 million a year in operating costs just for the blockchain combat log. And $2,400 daily in fees is actually with the discounted rate. CryptoFights has a special deal with TAAL, which is one of the largest transaction processors on the BSV blockchain. This allows them to get reduced fees. Arthur, remind me, who is one of CryptoFights biggest backers? Uh, that's Kelvin Airmark. And who owns Tal? Uh, that's Kelvin Air again, Mark. There it is. <laughs> I wonder how that deal got done. <laughs> uh, it's a circle jerk. It's that handshaking meme, isn't it? Kelvin Air shaking hands with himself. Yep, that's it. Yuan then took a look at the CryptoFights community and found something totally unsurprising. Speaking of paying people to adopt BSV, some suspect that CryptoFights buys all of their social media followers as well. Looking at one of CryptoFights tweets shows that almost all replies are about absolute nonsense in Vietnamese, which is a common sign of bought followers or replies. And considering that I didn't find a single other player online, this accusation might be believable. You have no idea, mate. When it came to rating CryptoFights, Yuan scored it a 0 out of 5 for ease of access due to the concerns over the remote control of the machine, and he even warned users not to download it on this basis. Things don't get much better when it comes to the graphics and audio. There is absolutely no soul in this game. It's probably the most bland, generic fantasy game that you could ever create. Even the name is uninspired. CryptoFights? Are you kidding me? Uninspired and mediocre artwork and audio gets CryptoFights a 2 out of 5. Can CryptoFights gameplay save it? No. Alright, I'm gonna be very harsh. CryptoFights has no gameplay. The entirety of the game is just rolling dice. While there are plenty of games that use dice roll combat systems, at least there's some sort of strategy in depth, CryptoFights is so simple that you're best off just turning on auto battle and then getting up to do something different. Absolutely thoughtless and non-interactive gameplay gets CryptoFights a 0 out of 5. The best way to play CryptoFights is not at all. Arthur, I feel bad now. Should we stop? <laughs> yeah, that's up to you, Mark, but so far, <laughs> I like it. Alright, let's keep going. On to the next section then. Use of crypto and NFTs, where things get immeasurably worse. You thought 0 was bad? Because the blockchain brings nothing positive to CryptoFights and actually manages to make the gaming experience worse, I'm giving CryptoFights a negative 5 out of 5 for this category. Alright, now I feel like someone's going to lose their job. 
Yuan's last category is the odds of the project succeeding, an opinion he dispatches in record time. Point number five. Will this project No. Alright then. Yuan's final score is negative 12 out of 100, summarising it as, quote, unbelievably bad. Arthur, as far as I'm concerned, CryptoFights kind of sums up the entire BSV experience. There's lots of talk, lots of promises, but what actually gets delivered bears no resemblance to what was promised. Yeah, exactly the same, uh, Mark, like you said, lots of promises, but no delivery. And this is exactly what Craig Wright is about uh, too. So Craig and BSV and everything around it uh, in the infra, uh, it, it's a match made in heaven. Actually, I like the sound of it. Lots of promises, but no delivery. <laughs> Give it the BSV tagline. <laughs> yep. Now, it must be noted that CryptoFights 2.0 was released on July 24th, a year late, so they may have addressed some of these issues. Although with fundamental issues like the use of the BSV blockchain holding it back, it's unlikely that the new version will make much of a difference. If Yuan reviews CryptoFights 2, we'll be sure to bring you his results. That's everything for this month, and indeed the next two months, as Arthur and I take a short break to recharge our batteries. We'll be back in September to begin the countdown to the Copa case in January 2024, but if you're very lucky, we'll sneak a bonus episode out for everyone to listen to, just to keep things ticking over. Arthur, thank you so much for joining me today as usual. No problem, Mark. Happy to be here. And uh, I hope you enjoy your month off, and I'll see you again in September. Yes, sir. See you in September, Mark. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice to get these episodes the moment they drop. And if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd really appreciate a star rating and even a review to help us get this out to as many people as possible. Our monthly bonus episodes are available to download from our website for a small consideration. And if you'd like to access all these bonus episodes, plus these monthly updates a few days early and other goodies, you can do so by becoming a Dr. Bitcoin supporter through Patreon or Spotify. See the details in the show notes for information on how to do this, or head to our website, drbitcoinpod.com. That's drbitcoinpod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at drbitcoinpod, and you can email us at drbitcoinpod at gmail.com. That's drbitcoinpod at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.